Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, September 15th, 2022 edition of the Boulder Weekly. My name is Orion Rooney. Today, we'll be reading the following articles. State of the Arts by Caitlin Rocket. Call and Response by Jesse J. Gray. Money Always Helps by Angela K. Evans. A Dedicated Space for Indigenous Artists by Will Matsuka. Celebrating the Honored Dead by Matt Mainpaw. Five Point Dancing into Boulder by Will Matsuka. Jaipur Literature Festival Brings a Diverse World of Ideas into Boulder by Bart Shainman. State of the Arts. A wave of federal grant money buoyed local artists' organizations through the hardest days of the pandemic. Now what? By Caitlin Rocket. I'm going to give you a little slice of reality, Lori Preston, executive director of the Museum of Boulder, says over a Zoom call. And that is, we lose, right now, 50 grand a month. Realistically, Preston says, if the historical museum received no more money between now and the end of the year, we have a survival rate of about 10 to 12 months. Operating on insufficient funds is a reality for many small to medium arts organizations across Boulder County, according to interviews with more than a dozen artists, city employees, and advocates. Of course, finding the money to stay afloat is a perennial problem for creative endeavors, but the pandemic shifted the financial landscape along new fault lines. Federal grants, CARES, the Shuttered Venue Operators Grant, the Paycheck Protection Program helped creative industries of all stripes make it through the crucible of the last two years. And the dollars were significant. Between the four largest arts funding organizations in Boulder, federal grant money increased tenfold, from approximately $2.5 million in 2020 to more than $20 million in 2021 according to Matt Chesansky with the city's Office of Arts and Culture. But as these programs sunset, Chesansky is concerned about arts organizations falling off the cliff. We got one to two years of enormous amounts of funds coming into nonprofit organizations, all of which was spent to help people get paid and keep it afloat, Chesansky says. And so, what does it mean on the other side of that? Who's got the money? There are four main sources of grant funding for nonprofit arts organizations in the city of Boulder. The Boulder Arts Commission, BAC, Colorado Creative Industries, CCI, the National Endowment for the Arts, NEA, 
and the Scientific and Cultural Facilities District, or SCFD. SCFD, a tax district comprising seven counties, including Boulder, is the largest funder of all, doling out some $60 million annually to around 300 organizations. The majority of these grants are for general operating funds, which allow organizations to spend the money however they choose, unlike a project or donor-driven grant. At the county level, the Boulder County Arts Alliance also provides a number of grants, though these are mostly project-specific. The city of Boulder comes in second after SCFD. Boulder's Office of Arts and Culture grants $925,000 per year from the city's general fund. The seven-person BAC deliberates on how to spend it. But the pandemic, as Chesansky puts it, was weird. The Office of Arts and Culture got an additional $913,000 from City Council from the American Rescue Plan Act, ARPA, for arts grants, which they split into two categories. One, an artist hiring grant, gives a dozen organizations $3,000 each to hire a local artist to create, whether that's mounting an exhibition or writing a play. The second provides 10 organizations with $30,000 each year for three years to hire back artist administration positions that were lost during the pandemic. The Museum of Boulder received one of these administrative rehire grants, recently onboarding Aubrey Reed as an instructional designer to create open-source curriculum for schools about Colorado's Black history. However, because the museum decreased its budget in 2021, Preston says it received a smaller general operating grant from the city this year, a $30,000 difference. And next year, Preston can't count on 10% of her operational funds coming from ARPA money. The rehire grant requires a commitment to maintain the position after the three-year period. But with ticket sales still at just 40% of pre-pandemic levels at Museum of Boulder, there's a lot of uncertainty. Preston points to the fact that Greeley, Fort Collins, and Longmont all have municipally supported history-slash-cultural museums like Museum of Boulder. But Boulder's Office of Arts and Culture doesn't operate any facilities. We so represent the city, Preston says, mentioning the museum's collaboration with the city to archive tributes in the aftermath of the King Supers shooting. But we're not in their budget in terms of preserving us as an institution. Ticket hesitancy and donor fatigue. Of course, grants, federal or municipal, aren't the only ways arts organizations get funding. We need people paying attention to their role as an audience member and as a donor on the other side of the federal relief funding, because everyone's going to be trying to adjust to a new normal in these organizations, Chesansky says. We need to rebalance the funding equation. The most important thing is getting people to buy tickets again. And there's no guarantee that habits haven't changed in such a way that it's not going to be enough to support the organizations. People are not coming back at the rate that we anticipated, says Claudia Anata-Hubiak, executive director of Boulder Ballet. And so, you budget for something, you take a guess, you hope you get it right, 
We've been conservative, and still, numbers have been significantly under what we anticipated. Tickets aren't an issue for Leah Brenner-Clark, founder and director of Streetwise Arts Mural Festival, running September 29th to October 2nd. The nonprofit offers workshops and artist talks for free, in addition to live painting on walls around Boulder during the festival. All artists are paid for their work. Most of the funding for the festival comes from corporate sponsorships locally, she says, and those are just getting harder and harder con to continue in a predictable way. And often, they don't come in until later in the year, and so you're trying to plan this huge event and not knowing if you have the money to fund it. That's kind of where we're at this year. I'm still trying to raise money to cover our bases. And I think in the future, if we want to keep doing this, we're going to have to figure out either a way to scale it smaller or work with partners that have funding in advance. Clack says 2020 was the biggest mural festival Streetwise has put on since launching in 2019, thanks in part to COVID relief funds, which Clack also received in 2021, but also because of philanthropic giving from individuals and corporate sponsors. Because people cared about it, and it was something they could experience outside and feel connected through, she explains. Last year was the first time Clack says she was able to take a salary from her work for Streetwise, and it was a very tiny salary. But as federal relief dries up, so it seems, is philanthropic giving, partially some guess from donor fatigue. Donors came out of the woodwork when the shutdown happened, says Hubiak with Boulder Ballet. We were so supported, and I talked to a lot of organizations that felt the same way. But there's only so many times you can ask and continue to say, we're rebounding from COVID. COVID has been hard. The rebuild is slower than we anticipated. To have the same problems year after year at this point, it's not compelling. Chesansky takes the notion further, suggesting that private donations, individual donations, memberships, things like that, I think have always been a little anemic in Boulder, with more focus in the area placed on environmental conservation. We only have around 800 memberships in a community like ours, with over 100,000 people, Preston of Museum of Boulder says. And it's not that much. It's $35 for an annual membership. So if we could get that mindset of, let's support local just by buying a $35 membership, we could have more stability. Affordable housing and a place to play. Nearly every artist, executive director, policymaker, and arts advocate brought up problems that exacerbate funding difficulties, namely the cost of housing and lack of affordable performance space. Basalt built a new performing arts center in 2021, says Deborah Malden, Boulder County appointee to the SCFD board. Crested Butte has a fairly new performing arts center, and Parker, Lone Tree, Arvada, I mean, many communities have performing arts centers. I don't see Boulder having an Arvada Center, but it is remarkable that they have it. We have nothing like that, and the dairy is a remarkable facility. It definitely plays a key role. It's Boulder's performing arts center, but it can't meet all of the needs. Through her work with Create Boulder, an arts advocacy organization, Malden and her co-founders have funded an envisioning study, as Malden calls it, 
to see what kind of performing arts center Boulder needs and where that could be located. Boulder Weekly's publisher, Fran Zankowski, is one of the four members of Create Boulder. The dairy is limited in the number of organizations it can provide office space to and the number of performances it can host in a season. We're super blessed to be at the dairy and have that space, says Hubiak of Boulder Ballet, which has administrative office and rehearsal space at the dairy. That being said, there still is opportunity for growth within our organization, and there's nowhere for us to go. And I know that us being at the dairy limits other people from being able to present work and being able to have office spaces. So there's a huge need in the community for the city or for private funding to create a 500 to 1,000 seat space that has administrative offices and rehearsal spaces. Because per capita, there are so many working artists in this town, and if we're going to continue to support them, then we definitely need more space. While not a performance space, Boulder's nonprofit arts advocacy group, Studio Arts, just received a $1.5 million community revitalization grant from Colorado Creative Industries to build a 12,000 square foot community arts center that will provide space for teaching and exhibitions. Travis LaBurge, executive director of Parlando School of Musical Arts, says that affordable housing for artists is becoming a bigger issue for his employees. We have more faculty members at Parlando commuting in from outside of Boulder, he says, and it's difficult because they have to live further and further away to find something that's affordable to be an artist, a musician, and work in this area. Malden points to the fact that other communities around the state are investing in affordable housing, particularly rural communities like Trinidad. They're positioning themselves to be a welcoming place for the creative community, Malden says. If not us, then who? Despite frustrations, most artists still say funding for the arts has improved in Boulder over the last decade particularly with the advent of the cultural plan in 2015. Chasansky says city staff are currently in the process of developing a new cultural plan by 2024 that will cover some of the gaps left by the original plan. We get that the community has an appetite for more funding, Chasansky says. What does that look like? For organizations like the Museum of Boulder, the answer can't come soon enough. I would ask this question of our community. If not us, then who, asks Preston. If not the Museum of Boulder to preserve all of these items, who would do it? Call and response. Stage leader Betty Hart brings a sharp eye and sensitive ear as co-artistic director of local theater company by Jesse J. Gray. For Betty Hart, theater is both a call and a response. What happens on stage is a crucial piece of her work as new co-artistic director at the Boulder-based local theater company. But how the play reverberates in the lives of audience members looms just as large. That's why community engagement is a central part of Hart's focus as she helps bring stage productions to life across the front range. While traditional post-show talkbacks offer a glimpse into the minds of a play's performers and creators, 
The exchange fostered through her role as audience dialogue facilitator brings theatergoers into the conversation in a way that's more collaborative, dynamic, and human. True learning isn't going to take place in the moment when we're engaging with the play. It's going to happen on the ride home. It's going to happen in the shower. It's going to happen on your run the next day, Hart says. I'm interested in helping that learning deepen. To that end, Hart encourages audience members who stick around for discussion after the performance to leave their hang-ups and preconceptions at the door. The post-show conversation surrounding a bolder production of the racially charged political drama The Firestorm by Meredith Friedman, for example, offered Hart an early chance to bring new understanding to a potentially uncomfortable subject. She sees such moments as an opportunity to do what the theater does best, foster vibrant and critical communities. There's just something magical that happens when we get to be in dialogue together. It enriches the entire experience, Hart says. I love when people walk out saying, I never even thought about that. If you can help people feel seen and heard and help them to be open to other people's ideas, you want to come back for more. Uniquely Human of course, Hart's work on the stage isn't limited to facilitating community conversations. She's an actor and director in her own right, while also co-running Local Lab 11, local theater company's new play festival. Her latest and most high-profile credit is co-assistant director for the immersive Theater of the Mind experience, co-created by former Talking Heads frontman David Byrne, at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. But when Hart moved from Atlanta to Denver in 2013, the theatrical polymath found her career strained in a way it had never been before. In Atlanta, I was only seen as an actor. I had never done a traditionally black role, with the exception of Tituba in The Crucible. I played roles like Portia in The Merchant of Venice because I could, and I just assumed that's how the world worked, Hart says. Then I came here, and suddenly I was seen as a black actor. I'm used to being able to do whatever, and suddenly I was being limited. But Hart's performing arts career, which arguably began with a childhood hairbrush mic rendition of If Loving You Is Wrong, I Don't Want To Be Right, for her parents' friends, eventually found new life on the front range. I finally just said, you know what, you're here to help all the things you're seeing. I really feel like I was called to Colorado, Hart says. So then, instead of thinking of Coloradans as them, it became us. I made a shift, and that shift changed everything. Part of what helped Hart find her place here was falling in with a team at Boulder's local theater. She began with the company as an actor in 2016 eventually taking on facilitator and directing roles before settling into her current position as co-artistic director. Hart says a big part of the draw is using her skills within the organization to spur communication and collaboration. We are allowed to be uniquely human. We don't have to show up with the guise of perfectionism. So we create something really beautiful and extraordinary that we all believe in, as opposed to it just being a job, Hart says. 
Something powerful happens when everyone is working together, moving in the same direction. With those crucial components in place, Hart says, any lingering questions of where she belongs are largely settled. It's completely home, much to the chagrin of all my Atlanta friends who want me to come back, Hart says, of her new Front Range community. It just speaks to me. I feel like Colorado wants me here, and I want to be here. Isn't that what home is all about? Money always helps. Music patronage nonprofit Black Fret launches a Colorado chapter to support local artists by Angela K. Evans. Last November, Miguel Alvina headed to the recently opened Meow Wolf Denver for a series of meetings that would set the course for his year to come. The first was to see if the experiential creative space would be the venue for the annual La Posada event a showcase of local Hispanic and Latin musicians curated by Alvina with his rock band Is Cali to close out each year. The second was a focus group of area musicians discussing the possibility of a Colorado chapter of Black Fret, a music patronage organization with roots in Austin. In the end, both meetings were a success. Izgali and the other La Posada musicians were the first live show at the Perplexiplex inside the Convergence Station at Meow Wolf, Denver last December. The group, Alvina, his sister Brenda on bass, and Luigi Ramirez, drums, focus on original rock in Spanish, in line with the Rock and to Idioma movement of the late 80s and early 90s. Over the last decade and a half, the group has established itself as a mainstay of the Denver music scene. This year, Black Fret launched the Colorado chapter, its third in the country, naming Izkali one of its initial 10 grantees, which came with a check for $2,500 for the band to spend as they pleased. It's been a good partnership so far. I mean, money always helps, Alvina says with a laugh. But it's been more than that. He says Black Fret came to Denver asking what local musicians need most and how the nonprofit could leverage the engaged local fan base along the front range to support emerging and established voices alike. The Patronage Model What started in Austin in 2013 by music fans Colin Kendrick and Matt Ott has grown into a national nonprofit with additional chapters in Seattle and now Colorado, with plans for more to come. Since its inception, Black Fret has infused $4 million, including $2.5 million directly to musicians, into these cities' local music scenes, building community along the way. For generations, the symphony, the opera, and the ballet have benefited from patronage, Individuals who support a full season of activity, says Kirsten Vermulen, executive director of the Colorado chapter of Black Fret. The patronage model for Black Fret is a curated season of opportunities to discover new artists. The Austin chapter gives away about a quarter of a million dollars per year, Vermulen says, with a patronage of about 700. Currently, the Colorado chapter has about 40 patrons, with a goal of reaching 100 by the end of the year. That would put them on a sustainable track for years to come. 
With 80% of dues going toward grants, Vermoulin says the organization runs on very little overhead. For those interested in becoming patrons, there are three levels of engagement. A single annual membership for $750, a duo for $1,500, or a party membership for three people at $3,000. Membership offers listeners access to Black Fret benefits, including public and private music events throughout the season and mixers with musicians and industry experts. Members can also join in nominating the annual group of Black Fret artists. The folks who are investing in Black Fret want to be change makers and want to invest in the journey of these artists, Vermeulen says. And it isn't a consumption, it's a partnership. It helps that the Black Fret Launch Committee is composed of front-range industry heavy hitters like Danny Grant, owner and general manager of Mishawaka Amphitheater, Robert Leha from the KUNC, and the Colorado Sound, and Dave Kennedy from Boulder Roots Music Project, among others. I'm a big believer that the arts really make places great places to live, Kennedy says. And so, if you're a fan, you're kind of obligated to help the scene, in my opinion. But it's not always easy to do that. But Black Fret isn't trying to reinvent the wheel or replace what other artist organizations are already doing in Colorado. Both Vermeulen and Kennedy agree. They say it's more of a complement to the existing structure rather than a competition. We're trying to help the local music scene in a lot of different ways, Kennedy says. Black Fret is providing a fan base and a base of experts. If an artist wants to tap into that community and expertise, they can. A dedicated space for indigenous artists. The Creative Nation's Sacred Space at the Dairy opens September 16th by Will Matsuka. It may seem like Robert Martinez is established, but it's been a long road to walk, says the native artist from the Wind River Reservation in central Wyoming. Despite his work being shown across the country for most of his 25 years creating art, Martinez says he's felt overlooked. It hasn't been until the last few years that Martinez has felt valued as a native artist creating work about native people. This is still a fairly new experience. Native artists have been marginalized and pigeonholed and stereotyped for so long. It's time, Martinez says, for native artists to tell their own stories. With that sentiment in mind, the Dairy Arts Center teamed up with the Creative Nations Art Collective to develop the Creative Nations Sacred Space a space permanently dedicated to Native and Indigenous artists at the Dairy, opening on Friday, September 16th. The dedication of Creative Nations Sacred Space comes at a time when concert halls, art centers, and museums are recognizing original stewards of the land with land acknowledgments. Marty Strengzuelk, an Ojibwe storyteller and the managing director of Creative Nations, says those acknowledgments are great, but have limited impact. Allyship is not about saying, it's about doing, Strengzuelk says. Although it is not true land back, 
Creative Nations shows an actionable step toward land back and re-establishing indigenous sovereignty in Boulder County. They have created something that's going to represent a moment of land back for us. A recognition of this land and what it is, String Zuok says. It is a bigger step than almost any organization ever takes. The space will serve multiple functions, providing a space for rehearsals, galleries, readings, poetry, and music, while fostering collaboration and opportunities for indigenous artists. Artists will have access to resources they might not have had otherwise, and will bring the community together in healing and celebration. I guess if I were to think of a single word, the word hub, if we can be a hub for native art and native artists, that would be incredible, Strangzuilk says. It's about making art as much as it is about displaying it. The first native art exhibition will feature works by artists from tribes with historical ties to Colorado and Boulder County, the Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Ute tribes. This exhibition will be free and open to the public through November 2022. Martinez, a Northern Arapaho Chicano artist, and Bruce Cook, a Haida, British Columbia artist, were invited to curate the exhibition. Martinez says it was humbling to be asked to show his and other Native artists' work at the new space. Our people haven't been invited before recent times, so it was great to be invited back to Boulder to show our contemporary artwork. Martinez says that Indigenous artists creating Native-themed art often do not have the same opportunities as white artists, emphasizing that money is a huge factor. A non-native artist painting, drawing, sculpting native themes and native imagery will have a longer and more lucrative career than an actual native artist painting actual native themes and imagery, and it's been like that forever, Martinez says. Further, he sees native artists giving back to native communities, but doesn't see non-native artists doing the same. But they don't see the problem with that, he says. The dairy is seeking to bridge that gap and empower Native artists through valuing autonomy and fair pay. The space, founded by five Indigenous people, is managed and envisioned by people who identify as Native or Indigenous. The dairy is taking a hands-off approach in managing the space, providing resources, facilitation, and guidance rather than controlling it. I think there's a real nice consciousness among most of the dairy staff to not take over the project, because the natives are really driving these things, Strengzewolk says. Paying artists appropriately is a goal for Strengzewolk. He says Creative Nations staff talk about what they should pay artists versus what they can pay them, with the hopes of addressing pay inequities for artists of color and in the arts generally. Problems don't go away if unaddressed, says Melissa Fathman, executive director of the Dairy Arts Center. It takes courage to step up, speak out, or make decisions that may make people mad or make you unpopular. But in the end, you know it's the right thing to do. 
The idea to create a dedicated space for indigenous artists at the dairy began in 2019 during the dedication for the mural Uncounted by Arapaho Shoshone artist Sarah Ortegon, whose family used to live on the land in the area. The mural raised awareness around violence against native women and girls. Fathman was moved by the piece and Ortegon's speech, which brought her to reflect on the dairy's historic exclusion of native artists. It completely changed the way I viewed my workplace, an organization that prides itself on community, diversity, and inclusion, that had almost no connection to the people who used to live here. I internally vowed to figure out how to reconcile the past, Fathman says. I realized that although I could not give the land back, I could carve out a space within the dairy facility that is permanently dedicated to native artists. The opening event will start at 6 p.m. with a traditional blessing from Harvey Spoonhunter, chairman of the Northern Arapaho tribe. Artists Martinez and Cook will give a live art demonstration for attendees. Art will be available for purchase during the exhibit, but not at the opening event. Fathman says there is a lot of healing and reconciliation that needs to be done because of past abuses and crimes against Native people. Healing comes in many forms. It can come as a stark message. It can also come through laughter or beautiful colors, cathartic movements or healing sounds, Fathman says. The arts provide all of that. So many transformative opportunities that go beyond words. Celebrating the Honored Dead Longmont's 22-year-old Dia de los Muertos celebration continues by Matt Mainpa. Elaborately painted sugar skulls rest beside photos flanked by candles, a cross and flowers, an ofrenda, a memorial to the dead, honoring them with religious sacrament and artifacts representative of their life. The ofrenda is part of Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. Though the festival shares Catholic roots with Halloween, along with an abundance of skeletons, the two holidays differ in intent. There are so many similar holidays around the world where death is recognized and celebrated. People tend to think Day of the Dead is Mexican Halloween, but it's not, says Anne Maka, a curator of education at the Longmont Museum. On Halloween, you dress up to scare off spirits, but on Day of the Dead, you're welcoming back your loved ones. Longmont's Day of the Dead celebration started in 2000, a collaboration between the museum and Latino social justice nonprofit El Comité. Since then, the festivities have grown to encompass an exhibition of ofrendas at the museum, gallery showings of Katrina paintings at the Firehouse Art Center, and a street festival to kick off the month. From October 8th to November 6th, both the Firehouse Art Center and Longmont Museum will host exhibitions honoring Latin American culture and art from the Longmont community. Ofrendas will fill the Swan Atrium at the museum, including a massive altar by Latino artist Marcelo Fernandez. Fernandez is doing a gigantar altar within that exhibit, and our community altars will be in the space around it, Maka says. 
Over at the firehouse, the main gallery will host its sixth year of Katrina's, paintings inspired by Mexican printmaker Jose Guadalupe Posada's La Calavera Katrina. Though originally intended as social commentary, Posada's work has since become an iconic part of Dia de los Muertos. Local artists from around Boulder County paint their interpretations of La Catrina, some including pieces of jewelry and other materials worked into the painting. The Catrinas are then auctioned off after the exhibition, with proceeds going toward funding the art nonprofit's programming. When the tradition started, the paintings were hung in our main gallery for our Dia de los Muertos exhibit, says Elaine Waterman, executive director at the firehouse. We are bringing them back to the main gallery, so it's like they're coming full circle. The work of two Latin American artists will be showcased in the South Gallery, an exhibition called Escúchame. Jamie Chuan and Adriana Paolo Palacios Luna bring paintings, prints, fiber, arts, and film to an immersive exhibit framed around cross-cultural experiences and the complexities of identity in the modern age. Part of the showing will be Chihuan's documentary, a film examining the Latinx artist community's relationship with Dia de los Muertos as well as Chiwan's own struggle with identity and artistic expression. The irony of Latinx artists calling out how they only get featured during Dia de los Muertos isn't lost on us, Waterman says. That's why we decided to give our South Gallery artists free reign and not have their exhibit centered on the holiday. Chiwan, whose paintings are full of skeletons in red cloaks and other death iconography, made the film for a documentary class last year. I interviewed Latino artists all around Colorado and how they feel like they're being used for Day of the Dead specifically, Chiwan says. It feels like we're being only called upon to show our work this time of year, or when you have other gentrified Hispanic holidays like Cinco de Mayo. Through the interviews with the art community, Chihuan found a mixed reaction. Some were grateful for her work, others less positive. Chihuan also found that predominantly white-owned galleries would exploit artists of other ethnicities to feature art during cultural-specific holidays. It's not just Hispanics either, Chihuan says. I did more research and found that African Americans and Asians are targeted too all just to seem inclusive. Chihuan says when he first started making his own artwork, the death symbols present had no connection to Day of the Dead. The celebration wasn't a big part of his upbringing, he explains, but people saw a Mexican artist with skeletons and just made assumptions for him. It feels very tokenizing, and that's why I made the documentary. I wanted to show people how we feel about it, he says. I'm excited for people to see it, and for the opportunity to show people coming to see Day of the Dead that they don't have to tokenize the art. Five-Point Dancing into Boulder As the newly appointed school director, Andrea Basile brings a focus on wellness to Boulder Ballet. By Will Matsuka Andrea Basile was living her childhood dream. 
All the hours spent in the studio practicing to perfection, pushing herself mentally and physically, and leaving home at just 17 years old for ballet school paid off. She was dancing professionally across the nation and loving it. I just remember looking out into the huge opera house and thinking, is this even real? says Bastille, describing one of her fondest moments on stage while performing Swan Lake. There were a few moments like this in her 18-year career when Bastille felt like she reached all the goals she ever wanted to achieve. Then, when Basile was rehearsing for an upcoming tour on a new, stickier floor, she felt a pain in her calf. There was a moment when something was clearly wrong. Because she was with a small company at the time, she did not have an understudy to cover her role. She couldn't take time to heal. She had to keep dancing through the end of the tour season. Without health insurance, she eventually couldn't keep her physical therapy going and had to stop dancing. There's a lot of emotions that go into that, because you feel like your dream is essentially crushed. And so I kind of honestly gave up, which I really regret, she says. But this year, Basile took an opportunity to start a new chapter in her life as the school director at Boulder Ballet, where she uses a wellness-focused approach to mentor her students. Starting her career. Since her first ballet class in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where she grew up, Basile knew she wanted to be a professional dancer. Although Basile doesn't remember making a conscious decision to join dance, she was five. Once she started, she never looked back. My mom tells me that my friend was in it, Basile says. She was like, oh, your friend is doing it, so I'll just put you in it. Soon, she got into the San Francisco Ballet School and was on her way to beginning her career in San Francisco. In her nearly two-decade career, she performed with dance companies in the San Francisco area and in New York and Georgia. After her injury, Basile ran a successful skincare business in San Francisco for six years. Although she was passionate about her business, it wasn't as fulfilling for her as dancing. She was also reminded of this whenever she would go see a dance performance. It was like a grieving process of what I felt like I had lost when I had finished too soon. I felt like there's so much more in me and that I should be actually dancing, she says. After getting back into performing for a few years, her career changed direction again, this time because she was pregnant. In her last performance, she danced with her daughter in her belly. Coming to Boulder. Reflecting on her performance career, it isn't the big companies or concert halls that Basile remembers the most. It's the relationships and camaraderie she built working with smaller companies. The relationships that are built are pretty incredible, she says. The majority of everybody that I've danced with are still lifelong friends. One of those relationships was with Ben Needham Wood, the artistic director at Boulder Ballet, who also started with the company this summer. Needham Wood and Basile danced for a summer together in 2011 in San Francisco and have stayed in touch since. It was a really special summer with everyone who was involved in that production, and so we all felt like we became best friends, says Needham Wood, who had a 12-year dance career himself. 
When the school director position opened at Boulder Ballet, Needham Wood thought Basile would be a great fit. Even during her performance career, Basile has always taught dance. She established the five-point dancer method in her teaching, a practice that prioritizes the mental and physical health of dancers. Basile thought of the hardest parts of her personal journey to develop this method, the injury, the physical and mental support, and the physical toll of being a professional dancer. The five points, mindset, work ethic, nutrition, injury prevention, and cross-training, help students become better dancers and provides a framework for life skills. I think the five-point dance method does a really amazing job integrating more sides of the human than a typical dance education would. That allows dancers to really embody their fullest potential, Needham Wood says. After using this method for years, Basile sees more body awareness, less injuries, and a shift in mindset and work ethic. The relationship Basile has with Needham Wood and Claudia Antahubiak, Boulder Ballet's executive director, who Basile also previously worked with, were strong factors in her decision to take the job in Boulder. Coming in, Basile knew she would be working with like-minded people. I'm very excited with all the people I'm working with, and it just honestly, it just feels 100% right. Like, this is, this is where I need to be, she says. Jaipur Literature Festival brings a diverse world of ideas to Boulder. The free Book Forward event featuring writers from around the globe returns to the Downtown Public Library, September 16th to 18th, by Bart Shainman. When local psychotherapist Jesse Friedman and her husband were traveling in India a few years ago, they came across a free literary festival in Jaipur, Rajasthan, featuring authors of the highest caliber. The couple was floored by appearances from literary titans like Nobel Prize winner Orhan Pamuk, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, and Kiran Desai. But Friedman says the real magic was in the crackling intellectual energy coursing throughout the audience. The excitement and the passion and the joy that was there, Friedman says, it was like, this is extraordinary. What on earth is going on here? Faces in the crowd of thousands were smiling, peaceful, like they had discovered something that wasn't common in their everyday experience, like having found water in the desert. And on the long way home to the front range, Friedman couldn't forget it. I decided I had to bring this event to Boulder, she says. So Friedman contacted Sanjoy Roy, managing director of Teamwork Arts and a producer of the festival. He visited Boulder on a sunny summer day, and he got it. He saw what Boulder is. He understood. He found that the people were incredibly well-educated, Friedman says, though he did note that it's a lot of white people. But Boulder fit Roy's vision of what makes a good festival city. It was walkable and within an hour from an international airport, for one thing, and the surrounding natural beauty spoke for itself. So in 2015, Boulder became the first location to host JLF in the United States. The Jaipur Festival in India has been around since 2006, 
and bills itself as the world's largest free literary festival. Since expanding for a few years after its inception, events have taken place in London and Adelaide, Australia, with other U.S. iterations happening this year in New York City and Houston. Great joy, great celebration. Someone attending the Jaipur Literature Festival for the first time should expect to be exposed to what Friedman calls deep intelligence and knowledge with really eloquent articulation. They will experience an array of diverse views and perspectives from places around the world, and from many different cultures, she says. They should expect a lot of intentional sharing of freedom of speech and freedom of thought. They should expect great joy, great celebration, and the incredible experience of being a human community. As for must-see sessions at the festival, Friedman highlights the appearance of journalist and former Indian statesman Gopal Krishna Gandhi, grandson of Mahatma Gandhi. The 77-year-old will be speaking about the letters the elder Gandhi wrote to his son Devadas, recently collected in his co-authored book, Scorching Love. We are the last people who have an opportunity to talk to somebody who naturally knew Mahatma Gandhi, Friedman says. I just get goosebumps when I say that. Additionally, journalist Julian Rubinstein will talk about his documentary The Holly, based on his 2021 book with the same name, which depicts the multi-generational story of a northeast Denver community exploring the history of gang violence and the takedown of activist Terrence Roberts. It's a story about justice and inequity that is mind-blowing in terms of the backstory and what goes on in the justice system, Friedman says. Although the festival is free, Friedman encourages people to attend the festival's fundraising gala at E-Town, 1535 Spruce Street, on Friday night, which is a ticketed event starting at $80. In addition to dinner and drinks, the evening will feature the Colorado premiere of the documentary Ahimsa Gandhi, The Power of the Powerless, a film by Ramesh Sharma about the legacy of Mahatma Gandhi and his message of nonviolence with opening remarks from Gopal Krishna Gandhi. The Jaipur Literature Festival, Colorado, takes place September 16th to 18th at the Boulder Public Library, Main Branch. The event is free to attend. For tickets to the fundraising gala, visit jlflitfest.org slash Colorado. Thank you again for joining us for this week's edition of the Boulder Weekly. Have a good night. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.